All right, let's go back to Exodus. We've been out of Exodus for the last couple of weeks because we encountered the name of God, Yahweh. And namely, that he described himself as the I am who is I am. And so with this, we took a little journey through a couple different texts, a little sidebar, considering what does it mean that he's the I am? Well, now we've returned to Exodus, certainly having not uncovered all that could be said. But we return to Exodus to find the I am is commissioning, he's deputizing, he is sending out Moses to be his messenger. And Moses is struggling with this idea How can I be a faithful messenger? And maybe you feel like that this morning. How can I be a faithful one to give on the message that we've been entrusted with, the message of the gospel? I am weak. I have fallen. I've messed up before. Where is there hope for me and how I might minister for Christ's name? And we'll see the encouragements the Lord gives to Moses and so gives to us in this text. But before we do that, I want to call to you a moment in history that was so pivotal, pivotal for this 15-year-old young man as he heard the gospel and was converted, and gloriously, God used this man so fruitfully all across the English-speaking world, and yet it all begins with the first faithful messenger to him, and it's maybe not one you would expect given how notable this man is. Here, he recounts the story of his conversion. Again, when he was 15, he says this. He says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for that snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. He was trying to find a place where he could worship with God's people, where he could hear the gospel. And there was a big snowstorm, so where he intended to go, he didn't end up there. And he goes on and says, When I could go no further, I just turned down a court and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people, so this is nothing notable. The minister did not show up that morning, Snowed up, I suppose, he says. And so a poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went into the pulpit to preach. And he was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was from Isaiah 45, "'Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth.'" He recounts, he didn't even pronounce the words correctly, but that did not matter, he said, because I thought there was a glimpse of hope for me in this text. Curiously, this shoemaker or tailor looked at the young man and called him out, and he said, you look miserable. And the man would later recount, he's like, yes, I did look miserable, but I'm usually not accustomed to being called out from the pulpit. Well, he continued on in recounting it, and he says, the the man's sermon You will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you will not obey my text. But if you obey it now, this moment you will be saved. And then he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist can, Young man, look to Christ. There and then, he says, the cloud was gone. The darkness rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ. Of course, this is the recounting of the conversion of Charles Spurgeon, probably the greatest preacher ever in the English language, if not ever since the time of the apostles. His influence and the way the gospel ran from his lips and ran from his pulpit all over the English-speaking world is astounding. It changed whole communities, and of course, it changed eternal souls. But it all began, his conversion began with an anonymous country bumpkin, you might call him, 
who ascended the pulpit with a stammering tongue. He was no ordained minister. He had little, if any, formal education. But whatever he was, he was a faithful messenger of the life-changing gospel. Let me tell you one more brief story. There's Justin Martyr. We're studying church history on Wednesday nights. I encourage you to come out if you're available. And we looked at Justin Martyr this last week. And Justin Martyr was a man who stood out boldly for Christ. He's known as one of the apologists, that he was defending Christ's name against the scoffers and mockers of his age. He was speaking up for the name of Christ, and it cost him his life. Hence, he's called Justin Martyr. But how was such a powerful man of God really a rock upon which the churches would be built for ages on? How was he converted? Well, as a young philosopher, he was walking on the beach, and he stumbled into an old man who was there looking for a family member, actually. And that old man shared the gospel with Justin. And at that moment, everything changed. We don't know who that man was. We don't know who the preacher to Spurgeon was. And yet, as they faithfully told the gospel and the conversion happened, it had a cascading effect, like an avalanche, through the world. So I bring these stories together, these two examples of faithful messengers. And I'm not talking about Justin or Spurgeon, but the countryman, that substitute preacher, and the faithful old man on the beach. Both of them boldly told the faithful, life-changing gospel, and that's what mattered. The power, the influence was not in their arguments. It was not in their fame. It was not in how articulate they were. Their power was found in the life-changing power of the gospel that they spoke. And so that same gospel is entrusted to us. And the question we're asking ourselves this morning then, will I be faithful and let the gospel powerfully work coming off of our lips through our lives, or will I not be? Will I be doubting? Will I be faithless? Will I be silent? Will you be a pathway, a conduit, a way the gospel can run? Or will you be an obstacle, a hindrance, something that people stumble over and that God has to step over to get his gospel out. As we turn to Moses here and we turn to Exodus chapter 3 and 4, you're going to see that despite whatever we would do, you cannot stop a faithful God bringing his true word to pass. And that too means even his faithful word to pass through you if you're his messenger. He's the I am. You can't stop him. And so we'll consider this the next two weeks. But If that's who God is, and He's faithful to His Word, and He's commissioned us to be His messengers, well, will I be faithful? Will I trust in Him, and so be a faith-filled, faithful messenger speaking the Word of God, or will I be a faithless, stumbling obstacle? Will you be a hindrance, or, or will you be a help? This was the question before Moses, and it's one that comes to us. And I will confess, so often I feel more of a hindrance than a help. Well, I think so did Moses. And here, God comes to meet that need. So we'll consider here over the next two weeks, and we'll only get to verse 9 of chapter 4 this morning, but how can we be faith-filled, faithful messengers? And in the first step to doing so, you have to proclaim the message. You have to proclaim what He's promised. How can you be a faithful messenger? Well, proclaim what the Lord has promised. Chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. To be a faithful messenger... You have to, well, actually, very firstly, you have to get the message, but then you got to get out the message. You have to speak it. 
You have to open your mouth. You have to actually carry that message. Now, the beauty for us, that is for the church, uh, the beauty for Moses in this text, as we are called to be messengers, the great thing is we don't make up the message. Uh, We don't have to be clever. We don't have to be creative. The message doesn't originate from us. Rather, God gives us the very words to speak. He's like, just read the teleprompter. That's all you got to do. He's telling it to Moses and he puts it to us. Because as we see here with Moses, God gives him the very words to say, gives him his script directly. Now, as before we see that, let's refresh our minds where we're at. We are at, because it's been a few weeks since we've been in Exodus, but we are still at the burning bush. Remember Moses, he was just minding his own business, finding pasture for his father-in-law's flock. He'd gone to this other side of the mountain looking for some pasture, and he espied a strange sight out of the corner of his eye, this bush that was on fire, but it just wouldn't get burned up. He said, I got to get closer. I got to see this. And it was that moment God goes, I got you. Listen up, Moses. I have some words for you that you need to pass on. And that's where God, in the first, reintroduces himself to Moses. We saw this as he calls himself, explaining his name, Yahweh, that he is the I Am. And so we took the last couple of weeks as a detour, considering, well, what does it mean? And we saw that it means, well, he's the self-existent one. He has life in and of himself. What does it mean? But that as Yahweh, he's all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He's present everywhere. What does it mean as the I Am? Last week we considered it's because he's eternal. He always was, always is, and always will be. No matter how far back you go, how forward you go, he is there. I Am. And we need to keep that in mind because that's the one that's sending Moses. That's the one that's sending us. The I Am. And he's sending us with his gospel. Here, Moses is being sent to three different audiences with three particular messages, all around the same theme, but three particular messages. And let's see the, what's in Moses' script. Let's see what's in his manuscript that he's just supposed to read out to these different audiences. First, he's supposed to address the people of Israel, and he's to give them an overall basic message. So apparently, he's going to have to go back to Egypt to see his enslaved brothers and sisters And God has given a message to Moses that Moses is supposed to give to them. And we go and we pick this up, verse 15 of Exodus chapter 3. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, and remember, that's all caps, so that stands for God's name, Yahweh, His personal name, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. So know, first of all, O Israel, this is God's name. It's Yahweh. You need to know who He is. You need to know this is how you will know me. You will know me by this name. And we've considered what does this name mean, and yet there's a wrinkle as to what God's name means or what they are to associate with it that we have yet to uncover. And we see that here in verse 15 in a couple ways. First of all, again, in verse 15, here we have two clues about what they are to associate with Yahweh, God's name. And we see it has to do with his promises. So note this. He identifies himself as Yahweh, yes, but then he further describes it. Well, who is Yahweh? I'm the God of your fathers. Literally, verse 15. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
And what's so significant about going back and naming all of these patriarchs? But again, they were the one that got the promises, weren't they? These were the promises that defined the people of God and what their future was, namely with God. And the future was they were going to be a great nation, which now they've become very numerous, but they're in Egypt. And part of the promise was they're going to be given the promised land, a strip of land in Palestine. And it's through this family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. These are the promises God has given to the people. And yet you go look at the people, it doesn't look anything like that right now. And we saw that at the end of chapter 2. Do you remember this? Finally, Israel in their slavery and oppression, they're crying out to God. They finally turned to Him. And we read this in Exodus 2, 24. And God heard their groaning and remembered His covenant. Think promise. He remembered His promise with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew So whenever he's calling to mind the the names of the patriarchs, he's saying, I made promises to them, and I haven't forgotten. More than that, I'm ready to act on them. You're not going to be left in Egypt. I promised you the promised land. I'm ready to bring you there. This has to do with his promises. This is what Yahweh means. Namely, that he is the one and only one who will keep all of his promises. That's what's picked up as it goes on, the second clue that this is talking about Yahweh's name being tied to promises, as we go on and read the rest of verse 15. He says, this is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. Again, this is the second clue. Every succeeding generation is going to look back and say, oh yes, God made promises and He's keeping everyone. We've seen it. We got out of Egypt. We came to the promised land. And we've seen him be faithful even when it took a long time. For Israel, try 400 years long time. Or even when you're suffering and things are very difficult and life is very hard. For them, try slavery. Try that kind of hard. Are you waiting right now on God's promises? Are you wondering, how could this be, God? How does this match with your promise? It's been really hard. It's been too long. Are you going to keep your word? The eternal God, the I am, will always keep his word. He hasn't forgotten. He's right on track. And succeeding generations and us who have followed them, we can look back and we can see it is true indeed. He is the promise keeper. He is Yahweh. That's the first message he's supposed to give. And that's to all the people of Israel. But then God gives Moses another message, a more particular one. And it's addressed to the elders, the leaders of the people of Israel. Look at verse 16 of Exodus 3. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, again Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, clue, promises, has appeared to me, saying, I observed you in what has been done to you in Egypt. Again, he's tying God's name to his promises he made to the forefathers such that in view of those promises, I'm ready to work. I haven't forgotten. That's the first word he gives them. I have observed you. I've seen what's done in Egypt. Now, the word observed, what does this mean? Other translations, I think, capture the Hebrew right well. It says something like this, I indeed care about you. I've been watching the whole time, and it pains me to see how you're suffering. I've seen what's been done to you, and it's wrong. I'm ready to deliver you from it. 
Because I'm always keeping my word, though. That's what it means. But to be honest, if we were in Israel's shoes, in shackles there in Egypt, I think you might want to question that. That is, if you compare, and maybe you're doing that this morning, well, here's great promises I hear about the gospel in Christ, but then I look at my life, and I don't see how these things go together. They seem to be so dissonant. Well, think about their situation. They're enslaved in Egypt. It's hard to make sense of these things. God, if, if you are so great and your promises are so good, then why am I suffering so hard? Why are we enslaved? Why are my circumstances so challenging if we really are your people? You been there? You felt to ask questions like that? God gets it. In his compassion, he says, I'm telling you now, I've always been watching. I always care. And I'm well aware I'm ready to act. Because of that, what's he going to do? Well, God tells Moses precisely. So then Moses could go tell them what he's going to do. Verse 17. And I promise that it will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And notice the goodness of our God and the way His promises work. It's not merely enough to say, okay, I'm going to bring you out of suffering, I'm going to bring you out of difficulty, but He's taking them out of that and putting good in its place. I'm taking you to the promises of God, the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, far better than all of what supposedly Egypt and the Nile provides you. I will provide for you in this land. You will be my people. And now, hundreds of years later, He's ready to bring it to pass. That sounds good. I'm in, especially if you're there in shackles in Egypt. But I can assure you, as he goes down to Egypt, there's going to be somebody there that's not going to be so excited about this plan of God. And that's the king in Egypt, Pharaoh. He's not going to be so keen on losing all of his slave labor, is he? Such that we've seen it already. He's ready and prepared to kill and murder to keep those, at least most of them, enslaved. And actually, the third message that God gives to Moses is to go right to Pharaoh directly. Look at verse 18. And they, that is the elders and the people, they will listen to your voice, the Israelites will. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, again, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please, let us go just a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, the way it's phrased to Pharaoh, you understand, this is a pretty modest request. This is not a big ask. Just give us slaves just a three-day respite. We might go worship our God. Just three days to worship, have a little celebration. I mean, to make a comparison in slavery and slave owners, even the oppressive slave owners of the South would give their slaves three days off at Christmas to feast and so forth, but not Pharaoh. Why not? It exposes his just sheer hatred for the Jews. There's no way he's going to do any of this. But this is no surprise to the Lord at all. Because understand, no matter how obstinate the king or how supposedly powerful he is, he cannot stop this God and his promises. He cannot withstand God's power, not at all, no matter how strong he appears to God's people at the moment. Look at verse 19. 
But I know that the king of Egypt, God says, will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. I get it. You're up against hard odds. He's not going to be very cooperative at all. Actually, it's going to take a very strong hand, if at all possible, to get you out of there. So what are we going to do? I love this. Verse 20. You need a strong hand? I got a strong hand. So I will stretch out my hand, God says, and I will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. Don't think he can stop me because he can't. I don't care how strong he says he is or how hard he beats you. He cannot stop my hand from delivering you and coming full on my promise. He cannot resist. The victory of God's promise, the victory of God's power over Pharaoh and over hundreds of years of slavery, God's victory over Egypt will be so overwhelming, note this, as God's people get out of Egypt, they don't barely escape, you know, by the hair of their chinny-chin-chin. They escape loaded with cash. Look at this, verse 21. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go away empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. They're not going to steal the Egyptians' wealth. The women are just going to ask for it. And the Egyptians are so overwhelmed by the power of Yahweh at this point, they're just going to hand it over. You know, it's like the guy catches you on the street, and if you're not carrying, we'll get on that as a separate issue. But you're like, he says, give me your wallet. You're like, okay, and here are my keys, and here's my, my, my other wallet, and whatever you want, here's my phone, just leave me be. Well, in a way, that's what happens here. They give them whatever Israel would want, even as the women and children are taking it away. Take it, just get out of here. And again... If you are where Israel is in this moment, okay, we know how the story goes, right? We know, oh yeah, God's going to intervene all the plagues. It's going to be great. We're going to be recounting this for generations and generations. It's going to be incredible. They're going to make movies about this, right? It's going to be astonishing. But put yourself in their time reference. Where is Israel right now? They're unshackled, enslaved, and beaten in Egypt. This kind of word, this is unbelievable. This is astonishing. It seems too good to be true. They are still in Egypt, oppressed, enslaved, burdened and beaten, striped by the whips of the taskmasters. And to think in a short while, they're not only getting out of Egypt, but they're running off with all of the plunder too. That would have to take a miracle, said Miracle Max. But indeed... It is the kind of rescue that can only come from the almighty promise-keeping God. It will take the power of God, but it only takes the power of God. That is, there's no help from any man or machine. Yahweh, the promise-keeping God, He alone will rescue and deliver His people. And to tie that then to ourselves, do you not see this is the gospel we've been entrusted with? This is the message that's been put in our laps and if you're in Christ in your heart. That salvation and the rescue and deliverance of your soul is all and entirely from God. That means all done by God, all accomplished by Christ at the cross. You add nothing to it and you dare not. 
Because you can only receive that gift if you receive it with empty hands. By faith, we say. Adding no works of your own. This is the gift and the message we've been given. Because you know you couldn't do this great deed. You couldn't free yourself. You weren't in bondage to your sin. Did you know that? Did you feel that before you turned to Christ? Like no matter what the sin was, it just kept dogging you. You never had victory over those desires. And more than that, there was guilt you had that you could not erase. No matter how many good things you tried to do, maybe you erased it for a time, but it never really erased because the judge still knew. Well, what's happened in the gospel? Left to yourself, you were doomed. So then what happened? God stepped in with no help from you. I love that word in Ephesians 2. It talks about we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were like the rest of them, children of wrath. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, His rich is not ours, rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, He made us alive together with Christ. And then He interjects that glorious phrase, by grace you are saved. It's a gift. Something purchased not by you, but for you. Gifted to you for the price of your soul, all paid at the cross. That is glorious, supernatural news that no one else can work. That's the gospel. That's the unbelievable news of the almighty promise-keeping God who said, I will have a people, I will show mercy to them, I'll remember their sins no more. God, how will you do that? I will come down and die for them. That's how I'll do that. I'll pay the price for them. This then is the message that God has sent His church to tell. That He gets all the glory because He does all the work. And we get all the mercy because He is a great God. That He alone does salvation. And note this, that word is no surprise for it is found right in the Scriptures. It was found, of course, in the New Testament. That's the word we get out. By grace you've been saved. But it was found right in the Old Testament as well. We see this as even Paul tells the Corinthian church. Because he tells them, here's the gospel. Christ died for your sins. And then he adds what? According to the Scriptures, just as I promised. And he was buried. And he was raised on the third day. And what does he add? According to the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, that is, just as he promised. We've got the message, Old and New Testament. God's been keeping His Word all the way along. He's been faithful, and He's called us in faithfulness to let it, the world know. May we do so. That's the first step of being a faithful messenger. Proclaim what the Lord has promised and accomplished. But secondly, we also point to the proof of His promises. That is, God in His authority has spoken a word, and that word alone as the true and living God who never lies, that word is good on its own. And yet God, in His compassion, in His condescendence, comes down and strengthens our stumbling weak faith by even giving proofs of His promises. Because again, in our fallenness and in our sins, His promises are so good to be true, they're fantastical, they're hard to believe. And Moses, we see here looking to chapter 4, Seems as he's having a hard time believing them too. Let's look at this. Let's look at Moses' response to these messages he's been given. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. 
Now, before we jump on Moses for being such a fool, I think we can forgive his doubt for a moment anyway. I mean, it seems rather reasonable that the Israelites back in Egypt, they might not be so quick to believe that God spoke to a guy in a burning bush. If your neighbor came up to you, hey, I know you haven't seen me for a while, but I was out in the wilderness for 40 years and a bush started speaking to me. It was crazy. I got a great message for you. And you're like, yeah, it is crazy. You are a loon. And then when he tells you the message, oh yeah, and he's God and he's going to deliver you, you're like, sure he will, fruitcake. What are you talking about? We've been here for 400 years. God doesn't seem to care too much. If he had promises, I don't know if I remember them. I'm sure he doesn't. Besides, aren't you the guy that like killed the Egyptian and ran away? You're going to deliver us? You have God's message? Sure, buddy. And so I think it's quite reasonable by the accounting of man to think that they wouldn't believe in him. And yet, did you notice what God had told Moses? Look back there, chapter 3, verse 18. When he's giving this message, he says, go speak to the people of Israel. And after he's done speaking to them and the elders, look at what we read in verse 18 of chapter 3. And they will listen to your voice. Note that literal words there. They will listen to your voice. I told you so, God. They're not going to believe. They won't. No, I promise you, God says, they will. And the way Moses says it, back to verse 1 of chapter 4, but behold, they will not believe me. I just told you they would, Moses, and I'm God. Oh, the audacity of this guy, right? To so flatly contradict God. You know, in effect, he's calling God a liar. I know you said they're going to believe me, but I know they won't. I, I mean, you would dare contradict the I am? And even still, instead of answering Moses in the whirlwind like he did Job, here he compassionately comes to help Moses, help him in his unbelief and the supposed unbelief of the people. And to do so, he's going to arm Moses with these three proofs, these three assurances, three little miracles that show God is indeed with him and God indeed is serious about getting his people out of Egypt. Look at verse 2. Of chapter 4. The Lord said to Moses, as, after hearing his complaint, What's that in your hand, Moses? I'm sure, with kind of a dumb look on his face, a staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. And so Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. I think this is startling for sure. <laughs> your trusty staff that you always lean on, you'd held it. Maybe he cut it himself. You touch it. Every day as you're walking around the the wilderness, maybe it leans by the door of your tent every day, maybe being a tool to strike a snake or to clear a path. And now that very familiar stick cast to the ground becomes a deadly snake. Living in the desert, Moses surely knew the danger of such beasts. Egypt was infatuated with their powers. That's why Pharaoh bore its image on his crown. They were seen as creatures of great power, and so now as one right before his feet, Moses runs. But then God tells him to pick it up. What? It's like, trust me on this. Grab that thing. Verse 4. 
But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. Suddenly, this great power that he was fearful of has now been harnessed, returned to a lifeless piece of wood. What is going on? Is this some kind of just like magic trick? God's like, watch this. Look at the cool things I can do. No, not exactly anyway. Look at verse 5. What is this all about? That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. I've appeared and I'm ready to go on my promises. I want you to believe this, Moses. You need to believe it and the people need to believe it, that I am the promise keeper. I'm the Lord, ready to deliver. You see, the Lord wants Moses to believe him. He wants Moses to trust him. And so he compassionately, accommodatingly, equipping him with proofs, evidences, signs that he is indeed a living God, ready to deliver on his word. And the Lord doesn't leave it there. He provides more. Verse 6 and 7. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And he did. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the flesh, the rest of his flesh. Now, again, this would have been pretty scary. Leprosy in the biblical definition was a skin disease of various kinds and sorts, but it meant death. Of course, you're probably familiar. When you got leprosy and part of the people of Israel, you had to be excluded from the people. You were unclean. Really, as they saw it, you were dying. You were like the living dead. In some cases, you even had rotting flesh on your body. Remember, or you might recall, Miriam, Moses' sister, later on, she tries to take Moses' place as one of the rightful leaders in Israel. And in judgment, God instantly strikes her with leprosy. And at the horror of this, Miriam's other brother, Aaron, responds to that judgment this way. This is Numbers chapter 12, verse 12. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away. It just already gives you the clue. These signs, whatever they are, these are not happy magic tricks, right? This is not about cute bunnies being pulled from top hats. These signs point to death. And yet, there's a mercy, too, for those that trust the Word of God, who grab the stick by the tail, who put the hand back in the cloak as God commanded. For as Moses does it, the leprosy, as quickly as it showed up, quickly as is it gone. Well, and the Lord provides another sign, again, seemingly without them asking. Again, he's just heaping on evidences that he is serious about his promises. Look at verses 8 and 9. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign, the one about leprosy. And if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on dry ground. Again, this is death. And this forecasts what God's about to do, doesn't it? For this is the very thing God does in the first plague that He works against Egypt. He turns the, the seas or the, the waters of the Nile to blood. It's a judgment. But why does He forecast it this way? What's He doing for Moses? He's saying, and He says it there, if they will not believe you, if they will not listen to your voice, He gives these signs. So they will believe. So they will trust Him. So they'll be ready to see what God will work and what God will do. God didn't need to do this. This is part of God's compassion. 
God didn't need to work this. He had promised and already said it long ago, long before Moses, actually. Do you remember this? We saw it when we studied the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 15, God has this interchange with Abraham. Do you remember this? Abraham's looking at life and he's thinking to himself, God, I don't really know what you're doing. Um, I'm supposed to have a great nation that's going to come from my family line, and I don't even have a son to my name. Well, of course, he tells him, look at the stars, and your sons will be more than that. And he believes God has counted him as righteousness. Then to prove the point, though, God has Abraham take a little nap after Abraham had cut a bunch of animals in half, which that was a sign of a promise or a covenant, an agreement two would make. And what would happen is, back in the time, you would cut the animals in half, spread them apart, make an aisle down the middle. You can imagine a bloody aisle right down here. And two parties in agreement would walk together saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may I end up like that animal? Pretty serious, right? Well, Abraham preps the whole thing. He's going to go in agreement with God, but then God puts Abraham to sleep. And God, in the sign of this fiery pot, passes through alone between the bloody animals, saying what? I'm going to keep my word, even if you can't hold up the end of the bargain. And that's a glorious word, but it was tainted with some not-so-good news. And that's where I come to this, because it predicts the 400-year slavery of his people in Egypt. This is Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. As he assures them that he's going to keep his promises, God also assures them of this. The Lord then said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, strangers, in a land that's not theirs, and will be servants there, or slaves more literally, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He predicts well before they ever get to Egypt, their 400-year slavery, that now the time is coming to an end as we're back to Moses' time. But not only that did He predict the 400 years of slavery, God predicted as well, I will bring, He goes on to Abraham, I will bring judgment on the nation that they served in slavery, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, right? We just heard this, they're going to plunder the Egyptians. God predicted it all 400 years before that that they would be oppressed for 400 years, that He would judge the oppressors, and they would come out loaded with cash. That's unbelievable. How could God have done that? 400 years of slavery predicted it all, and so precisely? Well, it's only God who could have done that. Abraham couldn't have thought this up. But the God who knows the future, who makes promises about the future, who keeps the future... He does it all. And he could just say, trust me. And he does. But then also in his mercy, he gives us little glimpses, little precursors, little foretastes, little signs and assurances that he indeed is coming to do what he promised to do. I have promised to judge those who oppress you. I have promised to get you out of affliction. And you can even see it in these death-bringing signs of blood and of leprosy and of snakes. They might bring death, but those who trust in me, I deliver from all of it. Again, he knows our weakness of faith. He knows how quick we are to doubt, our slowness to believe. Our slowness to believe because maybe his promise seems so good and things seem so difficult. Or maybe it's our slowness to believe because 
We know how badly we failed before. Again, think about Moses. Moses might be thinking, I hear the story you're telling me. I'm supposed to go to Egypt and help deliver these people, but I've been there, tried that. It didn't go so hot. I had to go on the run. And surely his faith was wounded, no doubt. And so with each sign, what is God doing? He's trying to build it back up in him. And so we do well to do the same. As Moses has been commissioned and God in his compassion has actually done for Moses, we do well to, yes, be a faithful messenger, speaking out the message of God, but we do well to accompany it, pointing it to the signs and proofs and evidences of its veracity. That is, we do well to speak it, but point to the proofs of that promise. Like what, Rick? You're not about to grab that microphone and throw it in the aisle, are you? Hoping it becomes a snake. No. And nor do we need to make up miracles or fabricate healings or revelations and the rest to know that God is true, that He's active today. Not hardly. There are so many evidences to God's work in abiding promises. Like what? For example, of course, creation itself. We talked about this as we considered the Almighty I Am, the omniscient and omnipotent God. But just look at creation. It speaks loud and clear of a marvelous, wise, and powerful creator. You need to point people to that as you speak to them about Christ and the gospel. Namely, as you speak to them, you were created by God, this amazing God, to know Him. He's calling you to find mercy at His feet. Oh, atheist even. And the atheist, you know, he might object. Oh, but I don't believe in your God. I don't believe in His Word. Well, Romans 1 tells me otherwise. God is at work in his heart. Make him know that. Or what of the many signs that our Savior himself worked when he walked on this earth? Tell them about that. Maybe this morning your heart's even struggling. Remind your heart about those things. When God came down and walked on this earth, what did he do? The effects of sin, he's just blasting them away. Blind people saw, crippled people walked, the deaf heard, lepers healed, lepers were healed. The dead were even raised. And to this, Jesus told all the skeptics around, this is John 10, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works, and that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. Jesus even said, look at the works and what I'm doing. Believe me, I am God, and I'm here to redeem just as I promised. He came to bring the effects of sin to an end. Or think of the sign of the empty tomb. He rose from the dead. Trust Him. Tell them about that. Well, Rick, I wasn't there to see the empty tomb. Yeah, but the apostles were. They saw it. They saw Him alive from the dead. They knew it. And they were so convinced of it, every one of them to a man died for it, one way or another. This was not some great deceit. They didn't all get in a huddle and go, oh man, what are we going to do? I got it. Let's make up that he rose from the dead. And then we'll be uh, showered with riches and life will go so well for us that they'll put us to death. I don't think so. They weren't putting forth a lie. They were holding to the truth, the reality that they'd seen Jesus alive. Would this, the Jesus movement, you might call it, would it have survived if he had not risen from the dead? Would he still be adored, prayed to, and worshipped if his tomb wasn't empty? I don't think so. Furthermore, just as he rose from the dead, 
all of those scriptures that God fulfilled in Jesus' life. The thousands, really over hundreds of predictions and prophecies fulfilled in Jesus' own life as he came to earth, right? Born of a virgin, Isaiah chapter 7. Think of the crucifixion. Go read Psalm 22. Or think of his resurrection. It's alluded to in Psalm 16 or Isaiah 53. And that's to say of the nothing, many more that were fulfilled to a T. How did that happen? That's incredible. That's hard to believe. Yes, if it were not for the Almighty God, the I Am, the promise keeper. So there are countless signs and proofs throughout 2,000 years of biblical and church history to the truth that God keeps His word, just as He said. But you know what I found to be the routinely most convincing proof of the truth of the gospel that God keeps His word? It's the transformed lives of His people. What proves over and over the greatest evidence that Christ is alive is when he takes a sinful, rebelling heart and changes it and turns them to follow Christ. Because you understand, when you come to believe, when you come to know Christ, that he's alive and that he loves me, he's forgiven me, he died for me, when he does that, when you're freely forgiven by Christ, you cannot but be changed by him. Otherwise, you've never encountered him. And we've seen this radical change throughout church history. We saw it with the apostles, Peter and Paul. They became martyrs. I saw it with my best friend who was a high school student, how he had been so radically changed by Christ. He shared the gospel with me. My dad saw it in my life when I was a particularly ungrateful, selfish, moody, and so angry punk kid. And at least by Christ's work, I was something far less so. And we've seen it over and over, the living testimony of God, how he causes new life, melting a heart and changing it. And those stories are not just past history. They're multiplied over and over right in this room, right here. We hear them every baptism. We see them with every testimony for membership. Christ is alive and he's changing hearts. This is not a dead old past religion. It's the living and only one because it's the one to the only God who lives and keeps his word. And it's not just this room. Go down the street to Kingsway, or go over to Sycamore Presbyterian, or go over to Village Church, or go over to Swift Creek Baptist, or go over to Old Powhatan, or Capitol Hill in D.C., or Grace Church in California, or Iglesia de Gracia in Mexico. The living church built on the living word of the living God who keeps his word. Rooms filled with sinners this morning, Sunday morning, because that's when he rose from the dead, all over the world testifying Christ is alive because he's changed me. Over the past 2,000 years, there has been this abiding, powerful testimony of the church, and it's the proof of a radically changed life. So go tell your story. Tell it to any who will listen. Tell it to one another to remind one another, no, Christ is working. He is alive. Let us not forget. And may our lives then be the living proof of that, that he lives and he keeps his word, forgiving all who call upon him. Let's call upon him now. We need his help in this.